Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. It's great to see everybody here. I'm uh, glad. I hope all of you weathered the storm well. Uh, I was actually here uh, in this building on Friday um, as the storm was kind of kicking up, and it looked a little bit different out that window. Uh, it, it's definitely now the calm after the storm. I'm loving the glass water. It's nice and peaceful. Um, I was a little bit nervous. I thought that, uh, yeah, it was going to look different uh, for a little while, but thankfully it wasn't too bad. I hope your trees are all standing. Um, but uh, I, I, I am excited uh, about, we, we got a lot of things actually happening in our church in the next few weeks. Uh, so, we, you know, hopefully if you've been around, you've heard us talk about the weekender. Say the weekender. And so the Weekender uh, is coming up October 14th and 15th. This is going to be an event that we hold. It's sort of a, uh, an opportunity for us to get to know you, for you to get to know us a little more. If you consider Risen Church your home church, but you are not yet a partner, or you're like, I don't know what partner means, and you want to learn more about what that is, um, I want to invite you to come to the Weekender, uh, and, and it's going to basically be two nights, it'll be, or not two nights, it'll be Friday evening, and then Saturday morning, and we're going to gather together, we're going to eat some food, we're going to talk about sort of who we are, what we believe, what we're about, um, and we'll talk a little bit about sort of what partnership is. Um, it's not a pressure thing, but it is going to be a, a, a hopefully an opportunity uh, to learn more about this. Partner is basically our word for member. Uh, we like the term partner. Member's a great term. It's a biblical term, but so is partner, partnering in the gospel, partnering in Christ. It comes from the Greek word koinonia, and so often when you see koinonia, it's the original Greek word. It's translated often throughout the New Testament into words like partnering, participating, even communing with one another. Um, partnering in Christ, participation in the Lord. So this is a, a, a powerful word. It saturates the scriptures. We're even going to talk a little bit more about that, not only at the Weekender, but this morning. And so uh, we've got the Weekender happening on the 14th and 15th of this month, and then also on October 30th, which is a Sunday, Sunday morning, say Sunday, October 30th. Sunday, October 30th. That was a long one, right? You guys did that in unison. It was nice. Had good cadence. Um, so October 30th, we are going to actually be at the KOA campground that morning. So we are going to have a special worship service at the KOA campground at 11 a.m. So we will not be having a 9 a.m. And we will not be having an 11 here. We're going to be at the KOA campground. So if you show up here, there won't be anyone here. Hopefully we'll have like a sign that says go to the KOA. Um, it's off General Booth. And we are going to worship Jesus together. We're going to have a worship service. And then afterwards, we're going to do a picnic. And we're going to have fun games and, and hang out together. It'll be a great time. So I'm excited about that. So, all right. Um, speaking of food, I want to whet your appetites this morning for Jesus. So we're going to continue in our series this morning called Hunger and Thirst. And so this is a series about cultivating a desire for more and more of God himself in our lives. Whether you're a believer or not yet. So whether you know him or you've known him your whole life, maybe you're a mature believer, you've been walking with him, I pray that this series cultivates a desire to know him more and more and more. Because if you think you've arrived in that area, you have not understood the, the eternal goodness 
of who God is. Amen? I want, so I want to I put that on display and cultivate that and draw that out of us this morning as we hunger and thirst for more and more of God and specifically the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our series by looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, which goes into detail, as we heard earlier, about a, a powerful ordinance given to the church that's often called the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And maybe you probably know it as communion. And so if you've been here before, you know that we celebrate communion together every week. It's, in fact, it's kind of the climax of our service. Like we don't hold uh, the, the worship music or even the sermon as the climactic point in our services each week. We actually, ref- we think of the uh, moment we're taking communion together as that point of um, significance, Okay. It's all significant, but it's all around this. We love the table of Christ. And so, uh, again, though, um, if you've been here before, you know this, but so maybe you have a, a decent idea of what's going on in communion. But like all things that are sacred, communion is both simple and extremely profound and deep. Like baptism, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it is an ordinance or a sacrament given by Jesus to the church. And there's often a lot of confusion surrounding this extremely powerful ordinance. So most people aren't even sure about what ordinance means. Like some, some of you are like, isn't that like explosive stuff? Maybe? Or, or, or why we even, some call it communion, others call it Eucharist. Some call it the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. And so this morning, I hope to bring a little more clarity around communion, while at the same time not stripping it of its wonder. Because there is some beautiful and powerful mystery surrounding it. In fact, my hope is that you will leave here this morning awestruck by the significance of the Lord's Supper, not less awestruck. We're not trying to rid it of its mystery and power and wonder. In fact, this, I hope, will enhance that, okay? And so this morning, we do want to bring some clarity around communion. Um, And so I'm praying, though, that the significance of communion will whet your appetites for the living God himself in every area of your life. And so we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 34, and uh, answer some of the questions that many may have about communion. Who is communion for? What is it? What is communion? What happens during communion? How do we take communion and why do we take communion? And so the point here that I want to, we're going to walk through this passage and let the passage show us these things. This isn't just my opinion. I'm going to show you from the word of God and the Apostle Paul will kind of bring these things out. So we've got seven points for you this morning. Seven. Um, And so I want to start though with the first point, which is the most important point. If you get nothing else from what we're talking about this morning, here's what I want you to get, and I hope this whets your appetites for more of Jesus. So this is the main idea here. Communion is all about Jesus. Communion is all about Jesus. And it's about taking Jesus and his gospel seriously. Okay? 
Communion is all about Jesus. It's about taking Jesus and his gospel seriously. So one of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia, I've used it, I I bring it up often probably because I I love it, and it's probably one of the most popular scenes in C.S. Lewis's children's series, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, And there's a scene where Lucy, Lucy Pevensey, little girl, she's talking to Mr. Beaver. And, uh, you know, she's talking about Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus Christ. And as she's asking if he's safe, she says, oh, is he safe? Oh, he's a lion. She goes, oh, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. I love it so much. And the reason I love it so much is because it also, and in the series, hear this, Lewis depicts Aslan the lion also playing and joking and having so much fun with the children. And so what we see, and it's true about who Jesus is, what we see through these series is that in one sense, he is so safe, right? Jesus is safe. He is our refuge. He is our hiding place. And yet, he's not to be trifled with. He's not to be taken lightly. He's not some genie in a bottle here to grant our every demand, nor is he some figment of our imaginations to be dismissed. He's the king, I tell you. So it's important to understand that we take ourselves here, at least, we take ourselves very lightly. Okay? In this church, we take ourselves very lightly, but not the gospel. Not the message of the true king. And communion communicates the significance of who he is and what he has done. And so it's not to be taken lightly either, right? Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've already referred to communion or, or this ordinance or sacrament, lots of words, and I've, I've referred to it by three different names even. Communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. Some of you have probably, maybe you're familiar with these. That is enough to be confusing all by itself, Right? Like, what are we talking about here? Which one's right? Well, the truth is they're all, they're all right. In fact, they all highlight different aspects and beauty of this celebration. For example, the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, okay? And it just simply means to give thanks. In other words, a massive part of this celebration is thanking God for what he's done for us in Christ. And so the Lord's table or, or the Lord's supper is a phrase that comes actually out of 1 Corinthians 10, 21, where Paul refers to this as the Lord's table. And then the term communion is the one that I tend to use the most and the one that I am drawn to the most, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. So it comes from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, which says, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now follow this. I just mentioned something about this. The Greek word here translated as participation is the original Greek word koinonia. It comes from koinonia. And so track with me. When it was originally translated into Latin, 
which was the first language that the original Hebrew and Greek was ter- ter- uh, blah, 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 translated into, interpreted into, long time ago, they translated, it, they translated koinonia into communio. Communio, right? Which, of course, is where we get the name communion. But its original root is from the Greek word that Paul used, which was koinonia. And so, yes, that is the same word that is used throughout the New Testament to describe those who partner together in Christ or in the gospel. It's often translated partner, participate, commune, or share even. Right? It's almost always used to describe the way the local church operates in unity with one another and with the Lord for his glory and for his purpose on the earth. It's almost like we're called to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond, or something, which is our mission. That's who we are. That's why we exist. And so this is one reason why we use the word partner for those who officially join Risen as your home church. So this idea of partnership and communion together in Christ is all over the New Testament. In fact, this is the word, again, koinonia, and it's heavily on display in communion, which is why I tend to like that word communion. The other names are good too. But it's heavily, this is, the, all of that is heavily on display in communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, right? And so, um, again, did I mention the weekender? Did I? Okay. I know. I, I know that I did. I'm just joking. All right. Um, so you can learn more about that there, and I encourage you to um, join us there if, if you're uh, able. So, um, but whether you use the term communion or Eucharist or the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper, it's all very accurate ways to describe this sacrament or this ordinance. And then, again, two more big terms, right? So lots of information this morning, but again, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about, I want you to get the why behind the what for this so you understand the significance of it, so that when we participate in this together, you realize what it is that's going on. And we take it seriously, right? So there's two more terms there. What's a sacrament and what's an ordinance? So an ordinance is something that the Lord ordains or commands. He gives us this ordinance. It's a reference to the fact that Jesus commanded that we celebrate and participate in communion. Just like he commanded or he ordained that all believers get baptized. Talked about that a few weeks ago. So these are the two ordinances from God for his church, baptism and communion, and yes, they are also sacraments. And so again, there's that other word, sacrament. What does that mean? Well, it's a a word from the Latin, which is sacramentum, or the verb sacrare, right? So sacrare, which literally means in verb form to dedicate or to allot something with great meaning. So the word was often used, actually, in ancient military circles. They would use this for the obligation that a soldier gave to his leader or his country as that that sacred oath, that sacrare. To to sacrare was to solemnly pledge allegiance or obedience to their leader. And so around the 3rd century, it became linked with religious rites and ceremonies because for them, that was a spiritual thing. And so the term sacrament became a designation for a sign with a hidden meaning, a deeper significance. 
something with greater significance than just what we can see on the surface. So for the ancients, a sacrament, or to sacrare, held extremely spiritual implications. See how this develops? And so baptism and communion were approached with this title of sacramentum, meaning they pointed to something much greater than just what we're seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, or feeling in that moment. And I would say that, yes, that applies also to emotion. Whether you are responding with and get a deep emotional feeling or not, it does not make it any less sacred. It's important. And so it's pointing to something greater, and I would say someone greater. That thing that is greater is the gospel, and that one who is greater is Jesus. And that's what it's all pointing us to. Now I want to stop right here and make it very clear, right out of the gate, that neither baptism or communion saves you. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, saves you. That's it. Period. End. Baptism or no baptism. Communion or no communion. All right? This is the gospel. That God became a man. He lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life with God in a sonship relationship with the Father of all creation. And that's an eternal life that starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what he did at the cross and through the resurrection. Not just one day when we die. It's not something that we're just holding out on and just kind of like, all right, well, I'm just going to be as perfect and morally, you know, good as I can in order to earn something later when I die. No, it's the moment you place your faith and hope in what he's already done for you. That's when eternal life starts because that's when his spirit fills us, indwells you, and overwhelms you and transforms you from the inside out. And then we begin this journey, which is a sacred journey of, in other words, sanctification, which means you've been justified by faith, and he will sanctify you, which means to mature you and grow you and, and draw you closer to him in the midst of life and throughout these processes, okay? And so the Eucharist cannot save you. It cannot atone for your sin. Only Jesus can do that. And so if you miss out on communion, it does not mean that your salvation is at risk. If you haven't been baptized, it does not mean that you are not saved. The point of these sacraments is not about salvation. It's about sanctification. Again, that's spiritual growth and maturity. That's why they are only for believers. That's why this is for Christians. More on this in a little bit. We'll talk about that a little more. But the sacred ordinances of baptism and communion simply commemorate, demonstrate, proclaim, and celebrate what's already been done for us in Christ. And so if you don't believe that, then this is not for you. Okay? But as they do, they're also providing a very real significance in strengthening our relationships with Christ. They, they, again, they whet our appetites, so to speak, for more of God. And so uh, we look forward to the day that what God or, or Christ accomplished um, at the cross is going to be brought to full consummation or fulfillment 
at his return. That's what we're doing in these sacraments. And so these, also these sacraments were instituted by Christ himself, right? Communion was instituted at the end of his earthly ministry just before he was crucified in Matthew 26. And baptism was instituted right after his resurrection and just before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, okay? And so both came with the commands to baptize and to take communion together and to, and to do it continually until he returns. So both have to do with material, uh, tangible elements like water, bread, and wine. And these tangible elements represent spiritual realities and blessings, okay? And so baptism represents spiritual purification and new birth. Think about it. If you think about being born of water, like there's all of these significant, beautiful imagery and images that come through this. So baptism represents spiritual purification and new birth, and it's a picture of being born again, and just like birth, it happens once. Okay? But communion represents spiritual nourishment or sustenance. It's a way to grow and mature and be strengthened like food. But that doesn't just happen once. Like, we don't just eat once, right? We do it continually. And so these sacraments are acts of worship. They're tangible signs that point to the grace of God in Christ alone. And so the presence of God here is with us. Like, it's the God with us now. Emmanuel, God with us and, and that's, which is made possible by what Christ has done for us. And so these are reminders. So there's key words that I'm using. So that's why we gather together and we celebrate baptism, and that's why we gather together and we celebrate communion, and what we're doing is we're gathering together to celebrate Jesus, right? And what he's done. Now, obviously, these aren't the only two ways that God draws his people to himself. This is important because inevitably somebody's like, God draws me to himself in all kinds of things, blah, 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 right? I get it. These are not the only two ways that God draws you to himself. If they are, you're not living your life right, right? Like God's constantly moving in our lives and sanctifying us. These aren't the only ways that he nourishes and matures and sanctifies his people. Baptism and communion aren't the only two modes of sanctification that God uses, but they are the only two that he has appointed or ordained as special responsibilities of the church. So they are pretty significant, and they're to be taken seriously, which is why Paul is writing this portion of his letter to the Corinthians in the first place. He's heard of how they're approaching communion, and he's not really happy. We just, we just read about it. He, he's more than a little concerned because they're not only are they not taking it seriously, they're completely like mocking it almost, which means they aren't taking Jesus seriously. Look with me at 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. It says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Uh-oh, right? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, in this case, there are those who are standing firm for Jesus and there are those who are flippant about it. Right? Now, this is important. People quote this out of context all the time in order to justify their own selfish preferences when they are in a divisive argument about something that is their own preference, 
okay? We need to understand that this is not always the case when division takes hold. Um, often division happens because both parties are simply consumed by their own secondary preferences. But this particular issue is a primary issue because it involves the truth of the gospel itself and following something Jesus himself instituted, okay? In fact, their conduct here is ridiculous. They were making a mockery of the gospel. Listen to this, verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So this is a sacred ordinance, and Paul received it from the Lord, and he also delivered this to the Corinthians. So there's like a, a what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians is actually, um, this was a little context for you. 1 Corinthians was actually written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So these guys did not have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which write about all that Jesus did in his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospels. This letter comes to them before they had access to that, which means that Paul is literally bringing them direct from God what he said. And so Paul's entrusting this to them and to us as a sacred institution designed to be continually revered and celebrated. And so he reminds them here of what he delivered to them. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, Eucharisteo, that's that word. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a theme there. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so again, communion is all about Jesus. That's why he holds up the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body and my blood. That was a radical statement, guys. Like, I want you to think about that. It was a radical statement for them then and it, would be a, it should be a radical statement for us now. But if you're familiar with history, follow this, then you know that this statement has caused a ton of controversy and division. I mean, I'm centuries of it. But the division's always surrounded the word is in this phrase. This is my body and this is my blood. You talk about missing the point. Follow this. People have argued and divided for centuries over whether or not the bread and the wine becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. I'm not kidding. It's a doctrine called transubstantiation. That's a big word, but that's the doctrine's name. And those who hold to it believe that the bread and wine don't just represent Christ's body and blood, but it's transformed into Christ's body and blood on an elemental level. That's why this controversy Surround, is surrounding the word is. 
This is my body. This is my blood. Many have reacted to that position then and said, no, no, it's just symbolic. There's nothing supernatural happening here. It's just a sign. But both positions have missed the point. Often, a lot of times, people get really wrapped up in arguments is because they're completely missing the point. In fact, I'd say they've missed the emphasis, even. Because the emphasis for the disciples that were sitting around that table with Jesus would not have been on the word is. It would have been on the word my. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Using that word would have been completely revolutionary for those disciples sitting around that table with Jesus because Jesus said this to a room full of very good Jewish people, right? And they were doing, they were celebrating Passover when this happened. They were celebrating the Passover meal. They were celebrating an ancient ceremony that commemorated the liberation of God's people from slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus records how God rained nine plagues down upon Egypt as Moses warned the Pharaoh, the most high king, that the next plague that would come would be worse than all of the nine before it unless he let God's people go. But each time Pharaoh's heart was hardened and, and he wouldn't let them go until that tenth plague. So through Moses, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb consume its body, and paint its blood on the wooden doorposts and lintels outside of their homes. And yes, that is a picture of the blood of Christ on the cross, the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And so that very night, the angel of death came and it would kill the firstborn son of every family who was not under the blood. And so when Pharaoh, who was the most high king, woke up the next morning, he found that his son had died. And it was through this final plague that the people of God were delivered from their bondage. Follow the meta-narrative. Follow the story. There's truth in this, and there's a picture here. It was through the firstborn son of the Most High, it was through his death, and it was through the blood of the sacrificial lamb that God's people were delivered from bondage unto the promised land. Guys, that's the gospel. That should sound familiar to you. He's setting it up. That was thousands of years before Jesus was sitting down to this meal. And so thousands of years after that, Israel is celebrating this important meal that commemorated the Passover, their liberation. And the bread and the wine had signified and was signifying and representing God's faithfulness to Israel. And so now the ultimate Lamb of God and the ultimate Son of the Most High is sitting down to celebrate and commemorate Passover with his disciples just before he would go and die on their behalf. And as he does, he holds up the bread and he holds up the wine, and he says, this is my body. What? This wine that represents the blood of that sacrificial lamb painted on the doorposts that covers you? My blood. This is my blood. In other words, it's always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. 
It was always about what I would ultimately do through the cross as the true and ultimate son of the Most High and the sacrificial Lamb of God. That's what he's saying. That was radical. This isn't about Moses. It's about Jesus, the greater Moses. So for the Jews around that table, they wouldn't have been focused on the word is. They'd have been focused on the word my. This is my body and my blood. The point was and is and always has been about Jesus, which is why he says do this in remembrance of me. So so the first point was communion is all about Jesus, right? And so the second point here is communion is a command to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. It's an ordinance to us as his church. Right? This, is, this is just another reason why joining a local church is so important. If there's a clear command to consistently gather unified in Christ throughout the scriptures and remember and recount and focus and align our hearts with who we are because of what he's done and who he is. Dr. Sam Storms, uh, a man articulates the significance of this experiential theology so well. And he's, he's taught me a lot about the manifest presence of God in our lives, especially in communion. He put it like this. I just I want to read it to you. Dr. Storms put it like this. He says, in, re- in reference to communion, he says, It is a remembrance which takes a tangible, visible form. The elements are designed to stimulate our spiritual senses by physical means. It's not sufficient simply to say, remember. We must go on to present to the eye and to the touch and to our taste this tangible representation of the truth about which we are speaking. And again, it is surely an act of merciful condescension to our weaknesses as sinners that the Lord has established the sacrament in this way. It's a remembrance designed to strengthen us spiritually. The Eucharist serves to intensify and increase our own understanding of Christ's death and our confidence in its saving power. When we partake in faith, the Holy Spirit uses these elements to deepen our awareness of Christ's love and abiding presence. The Spirit uses our ingestion of these elements to activate within us a heightened confidence and trust in the finality and sufficiency of Christ's death. It's one of the many means or instruments by which the Spirit changes us and transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. Therefore, although the Eucharist does not save us, it most assuredly does sanctify us. How good is that? I love this stuff. Look, the call here is to remember or commemorate, but it's also a confession. Follow me. Third point here, communion is a confession of belief. And it's a confession of belief that Christ died for me. Remember, Jesus says, this is for you, right? My body given for you. So by coming to the table, we're receiving that his body and his blood and his sacrifice was and is indeed given for me. It's a confession that you are receiving this. Not just, it's not just about others. It's not just a, a separate thing about those people, right? It's personalized. It's, in, it's, it's an intimate thing, a personal thing. And yet it's also corporate, right? 
But it's a confession of personal and continual need. It's my hunger and my thirst for God. So by coming to the table to receive, we're also proclaiming, say proclaim, Christ's death until he comes. And and hear this. Some of y'all need to get this. Serious doesn't always mean sad. Okay? You got to get this. Serious doesn't always mean sad. In fact, if you're not celebrating what's taking place, you ain't taking it seriously. Because there's so much hope here. So much. Man, this is all hope. You're proclaiming. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. You know what that means? He ain't dead anymore. He's coming back. There's a hope here. This is not a sad thing. Communion actually turns you into a preacher of the gospel. When you receive it, you're preaching it, even with your actions. That's why whenever we celebrate communion, we make it clear that this is about the gospel. This is about Christ's atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, and his return. There's a victory here. And so like baptism, it is a public proclamation of your inward faith. Now, I want to emphasize here that as we remember, as we proclaim, and as we celebrate, we also experience. Point four, communion is an experience of God's presence together. Again, I got a quote here from Dr. Storms because he puts it so well. He says this, Jesus is uniquely and extraordinarily present in a spiritual sense. His body and blood are not physically present in the elements, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, when we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we experience a heightened and intensified spiritual presence of Christ. When we receive the elements in faith, we are enabled by the Spirit to enjoy and experience and receive a greater manifestation of the spiritual power and presence of Jesus than we do ordinarily and at other times. Now, this isn't necessarily about a feeling or an emotion, as I said earlier, okay? This used to confuse me a lot, to tell you the truth. I, I used to think, because oftentimes people present uh, the presence of God as only when you are feeling this heightened emotion. And if you don't feel that, then he must not be near. And, and I would often associate that with music. But I was mistaking emotion for his presence. Like, they, they aren't necessarily the same thing. Now, yes, hear this. His presence often sparks deep emotion. And that is good. Praise God. It's good. But just because you feel emotion doesn't mean you're feeling the spirit of God either. Just listen to James Brown. Right? Soul music. Soul music. I'm talking, look. You listen to James Brown. You, I, I was watching a concert with James Brown one time, and, you know, he's jumping around. He's dancing. He's, I mean, just doing this thing, you know, ha, 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 you know. <laughs> and then suddenly he'd be like, we, 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 we're having church. Are they having church? No. Is he talking about things of God? No. No, 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 no. Right? But it's evoking a ton of emotion. So people get confused often because they're like, man, I mean, just look, American Idol. We're having church now. You're not having church on American Idol. 
Okay? I'm not, this is not, a, I'm, not I'm not bashing, I'm not, well, I am. If they're saying that's church, I'm bad, that's, that's not church. So, <laughs> but the point that I'm trying to make here is that often these things can get confusing, right? Like, I, I, again, emotion is great when it's in response to the presence of God. But it can also be tricky. Now, if your emotion is in response to the love of God in Christ, praise God. That's great. My point here is not to think that the presence of that feeling or lack of that feeling means God's presence is near or available or not. Okay? Your response does not dictate his reality. In fact, the issue here is that the Corinthians weren't taking his very real presence seriously. He was there, and they were ignoring him. Again, let me say this. Praise God for emotion evoked by the goodness of God. The, the fear of emotion can also be a method for quenching the spirit. Like We'll talk more about this as we continue through this series. The point here, though, is to not discount the realities of the gospel because of your own feelings in one way or the other. But the point is to place your spirit and your flesh under the dominion of the Holy Spirit and what is true as articulated in his word. This is what it looks like to feast upon the bread of life. So communion is a great place to do that. You might even say it's a place given by God to experience that. So, point five. Communion is a moment in which the past, present, and future come together in an experiential celebration of Jesus. So communion is the opportunity to replace the disappointments and mistakes of the past with the sacrifice of Christ. And it's where we replace tomorrow's worries with the hope of his return. Because you're proclaiming his sacrifice until he returns, right? There's a hope here. So you're replacing all the anxieties about the future and with, uh, with hope. And, and you're replacing all of the mess of your past and all the things with his sacrifice and grace. And as we do that, we're able to, in real time, experience the real presence of the living God unhindered by our inability and rest fully upon the all-sufficient grace of the living Savior and King. And hear me, that's available to you at all times. There's something powerful about when we come together in unison, unified around that truth which we all share, or in which we all koinonia. Right? It's beautiful. Again, communion is all about Jesus, and it's about taking Jesus and his gospel seriously. His grace you're taking seriously to say my sin's too great for your grace, that ain't taking him seriously. Now look at verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Oh! So what does taking communion in an unworthy manner mean? Pretty important. Well, again, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, right, you need to ask, what's the therefore? 
therefore, right? And right now, that's important, okay? So what is it therefore? Well, it's there to emphasize the sacred nature of communion. He's saying, since this is sacred, since this is about Jesus, since this is about remembering Jesus and proclaiming Jesus and celebrating Jesus, it should be taken seriously, not indifferently. Now, hear this. I've watched people twist this so much. Like, pay attention. This is not about whether you are worthy of the table. This is not about how fresh your sin was or is. This is not about how well you did last night at that temptation that you either caved on or did not. So many people refuse communion because they don't think they are worthy of the table. Right? Maybe they're dealing with shame or guilt because of sin. Maybe the weight of your own sin and failure is so heavy on you that you feel unworthy of the table, and so you don't take communion until you do feel worthy of it. Because that's, that would be un, an unworthy manner. Like, th- that means that you are not taking it seriously. Like, that's completely backwards. Point six. Communion is about his worth, not yours. Communion is about his worth, about what he has done, not what you've done or didn't do. To take communion in an unworthy manner isn't about your worth, it's about disregarding his worth. You see this? Taking it in an unworthy manner means that you're not taking it seriously. You're not really putting your faith and hope in what he's done for you, and you're not taking him seriously. It means you're indifferent, complacent, flippant, or apathetic about the significance of what's going on, or you've missed it altogether. It means you're not thinking about Jesus. You're only thinking about yourself or your own stomach, or even worse, your own worth. Or your own ability or inability. So if you come to the table thinking you're good enough, you've ignored your need for the cross, which is represented by the elements in the first place. So the point of the table isn't about what you deserve. It's about receiving what's been done for you. It's about the Father preparing a place for you at the table of fellowship with him and inviting you to come. It's about feasting with and on Jesus. Not because of what you have or have not done, but because you're his So if you're struggling with depression, or you're struggling with anxiety, or you're struggling with feelings of shame, if you're struggling with sin, and crying out for him as your savior, those are just more reasons to come to the table. That is how this thing's whole, the whole thing's set up. Some might say, well, isn't that hypocritical? Not if you confess that that sin is wrong, and you're crying out for the grace of your savior to liberate you from it. That's what this is. Now hear me. Here, this is very important. If you're living in sin and you're saying it's not a big deal and you're saying, ah, oh, God doesn't care about it. It's not a big deal. I'm, I'm not really turning away from it. I'm just kind of putting it over here for now so that I can return to it later, you know, on Saturday, next Saturday night, that kind of thing. If that's where your heart and head is, then I would encourage you 
Well, first, I would encourage you to repent, but if you're not ready to do that, then I would encourage you not to come to the table. Unless you're willing to turn away from that sin and towards your Savior. I'm not asking if you think you have what it takes next week or tomorrow night or whenever you face that. The point is that you're saying you need help, that you don't want your sin and you want your Savior. That's what this is. Otherwise, you're ignoring the significance of what he's done for you by living in unrepentant sin, and that has very real consequences. And hear me, God loves you, and he loves his church, and he loves both too much to ignore that. Okay? Which leads me to verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Wait, is this tying illness together, like, with sin? Is this, is this saying that people, like, illness and sickness is tied together with sin? Yes. Yes, it is. And, and if you know anything about the Bible and the world we live in, that shouldn't be that surprising. Like, okay, does that mean everybody and every time somebody is sick that it's because they're living in unrepentant sin and not taking communion seriously? Of course not. Absolutely not. But could sickness be tied with unrepentant sin? A- absolutely yes. Is it your job to decide on whether somebody's sick, whether that's because they're in sin? No. That is not your job. Essentially, the greatest sickness of all, though, is death itself. And it is the direct result of sin. It's the context in which we live, guys. It's why we need the cross. Remember, this is the same God who struck down people dead for entering into the temple of God in an unworthy manner in the Old Testament. Same God. And according to the New Testament, which he does it in the New Testament too, this is what I'm saying. According to the New Testament, the Old Testament temple was simply a foreshadowing of what the New Testament church would be. And so when you gather together and take communion, we're essentially entering into fellowship with God and one another in his very real presence. And so it makes sense then that if people do it in an unworthy or mocking or indifferent way, God would cleanse the temple that he loves so much. And we see that he does that in the New Testament kind of often. Right? So here, what we're seeing here is that he's calling us to, to discern and examine ourselves before the Lord to become aware of his presence and his grace and his goodness. Not our worth, but his worth. Not to say I'm good enough, but to say you're good enough. Not to say I'm not going gonna to stay back because I'm scared of that thing. But honestly, if you're saying I'm going to stay back because I'm scared of that thing, it's because you are placing more weight on your ability than you are his. That would be unworthy, right? You follow this? Okay. So that's what this is about. It's an invitation to come into fellowship and trust and reliance and faith in Christ alone. This is also why, last point, seventh point, here we go, communion is for believers. Okay? The ultimate apathy towards Jesus would be to reject him as Savior and Lord and yet take communion because you just want to belong. Like that person's coming to the table in willful unrepentance. And you might say, yeah, but that wasn't, that, wasn't that person already condemned? Yes, it was. Like, isn't everybody who's outside of Christ condemned already? Yes. But if you think salvation comes simply by participating in communion, even though you don't actually believe Jesus is Savior and King, 
then what this is saying is that to partake of this table is to lie to yourself and to eat and drink condemnation rather than to discern, confess, repent, and believe. That's why when we invite you, we say, I want you to take time and process and meditate and pray. And if you're not ready to come forward, I pray that you, you, you don't. But if you are, welcome. Come and welcome. And next week, I want you to think about it again. And throughout the week, and we want to walk through this journey with you. That's what this is about. Because if you don't care, then you'll never become aware. How can you come to grips with your own status before God if you're ignoring the significance of what he's done for you and who he is? And so communion is, in many ways, a point of looking at yourself, right? Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see it? Again, hear me this morning. When you pause and pray as David did, Psalm 139, verse 23 through 24, when you pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When we pause and we pray and we think about Jesus and we remember this is about Jesus and not about us, that's when he disciplines us as, as a good father lovingly disciplines his children and aligns us with what is true, aligns us with who he is, and, and he aligns us with one another in communion. And so when that happens, it's not just like a cognitive acknowledgement. There's something spiritual that takes place there. It gets into the recesses of our souls, even on a subconscious level. That's what's happening. So verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So it's important to realize that the way that the early church was celebrating communion was a lot more like a kind of a potluck, okay? Like a picnic, you might say. They, they were still trying to figure out the significance of it all. Remember, this is very early in the church, so just because we get a description in Scripture doesn't mean it's a prescription for how we should do things, right? You following this? So that doesn't mean that we should have a potluck every time we celebrate communion. In fact, if that's where they started going. They started missing the significance. In fact, the reason communion has developed into a more formal opportunity to commemorate, celebrate, and experience is precisely because of this passage. It's why we do it the way we do it and why the church has done it this way for thousands of years. Um, Again, potlucks and picnics are great, October 30th. But the point of communion is a very real acknowledgement of who Jesus is for us and what he has done to focus on him. Because communion is all about Jesus. It's all about taking Jesus and his gospel seriously. So let's feast together at the table of fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.